Matt McInerney, New York. Andy Mangold, Baltimore, Maryland. Dan Auer, San Francisco. It's November 19th, 2014. This is On The Grid, episode 91. This week on the show, we talked about using Uber and the dream of minibuses. Here we go. I was in New York twice in the past seven days, and I was in Boston once in the past seven days. And I'm sorry, Matt, I didn't call you, but I had no time. I was there for That's meetings. That's okay. It happens. Yeah. I was once near Baltimore. <laughs> Let me guess. You took the train through, and you saw the billboard with Natty Bo proposing to the Utz girl from the train? I don't remember the Utz girl thing, but mm-hmm. I did take the train. I was in a meeting for like three hours, and I came right back. This is the it time happens. when you were at BWI, and you were telling me you were in Baltimore, but you were actually in BWI, which is like a totally different Yes, place. that is exactly it. Yep. I remember that. Yeah. That was the yep. one time Matt came somewhat in proximity to the place that I live. Yep. But yeah, I was up in New York for two separate meetings, took the train up and back on the same day both times, and I am tired. I'm a tired boy. It's a lot of trains, a lot of training, a lot of airplanes to Boston. It's been a lot of travel. Take the plane to Boston? Took the plane to Boston because it's cheaper than the train. I would prefer to take the train for environmental and emotional reasons, but it was like three times as expensive and took twice as long. And I was like, the math does not work out on this. I can't afford to take the train. It's shocking how expensive trains are in this country. I think it's primarily up in the the Northeast Corridor where you and I live, Matt. Yeah. Uh, It's shocking how expensive they are and also how bad they are for how much you pay, right? Like each day, it was me and one of my coworkers went up to New York and came back on two separate days, both within the span of one day. And the yeah. tickets on each day cost almost $600 for the two what? of us to go. Yeah. Wow. It's like $200 Gosh. a person a direction, more or less. Yeah, so I guess more than that, actually. No, it was $165 a person a direction. So it was like oh, yeah, that 600 makes bucks. Yeah, like a train yeah. ticket from New York to Boston is going to be about $160, $170 each way. That's atrocious. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty bad. Yeah, so, so it, collectively, our company has spent... $1,300 on train tickets in the past eight days. Oh, wait. How long is the drive between New York and Boston? Four hours. Five four, hours. Yeah, four or five hours, depending okay, on traffic. So that's like a tank of gas. So if you had to drive, it would be cheaper, right? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, way, but way then way you're cheaper. driving, and that's just the most emotionally crushing thing you could possibly do to transit yourself. Especially in Boston. Driving in Boston is not great. Oh, man, I love drives. Do you love driving on, fucking on 95 between New York and Boston? Have you ever done that, Dan? Because it's not fun driving. It's not country it's not No, I have, I have done 95 between uh, Raleigh and Savannah, which is that wonderful. That still does not That's count. That's completely That's, different. No. I know. I know. I've driven 95 <laughs> from Savannah to Massachusetts, which oh. involves the stretch of road you're talking about, yeah. and it's night and day. Like, there is... Really? South 95 is just... Open Wonderful. highway, do yeah. whatever you want. As soon as you get yeah. past Richmond, 95 is like a, it's a bowling lane, right? It's perfectly straight. <laughs> there's nothing around you. you just well, there's a lot forever. of racist posters, a lot of racist there's billboards. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Union Jacks, a lot of, uh, a lot of fireworks, weird, billboards. A lot of billboards for south of the border, a lot of those. That, oh, that's yeah. what I was talking yeah. about specifically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, see, it's terrible. Yeah, I've, oh. I've actually driven 95 all the way from Maine to Florida, pretty much the entire length of it. Well, there wow. you go. And I hated it. I'll never do it again. I don't like driving, so I will take a train even... Also, so so truthfully, Dan, the reason we don't drive is because we can work on the train. Can't work while in the car. Uh, parking in Manhattan is a nightmare or a zillion dollars. You pick your, pick your poison. And it's just generally more emotionally satisfying. The trains are great. You're also saying, like, emotionally about airplanes and stuff. Do you just not like airplanes? Or oh, is it- I mean, so I, I love the magic of flight. I still have a sense of wonder about getting on a plane. I'm the person that's, like, looking out the window as if it was their first flight, but I do that on every yeah. flight. But I do feel emotionally bad about ruining the environment with airplanes. Uh, that's a real concern. And also, like, traveling by air, the getting to... I mean, we're, we're joining the, the ranks of podcasts now that complain about air travel, but, you know, <laughs> the security is terrible. The, I'm a very big man. I found out today I'm 6'3", apparently, according to the person that measured me today. Uh, so I don't really fit on the airplane so great. A lot of stale air, a lot of strangers. Yeah. Uh, so, so no, I, I, that to me is an emotionally stressful situation. Getting on a train is a delight. It's the only way to take a flight and maintain your sanity is to get there just obscenely ahead of time. Uh, this is something I've done for a long time. Craig Maud wrote a great blog post about how to fly and not lose your lose your mind. And pretty mm-hmm. much the main tip is like, as early as you think you need to get there, get there an hour before that. And that way, no matter what happens, you are not stressed out of missing your flight. You can be stuck in a line of security. You just said that wasn't to a podcast. Just zone out. You can get to the gate yeah. early, read a book, put your feet up, get some food, go to the bathroom, take your time. That's the only way to fly. But it still sucks, right? And then the environment gets ruined because you're, uh, you know, just burning a lot of fuel. So... 
We got, we, I got life insurance this week. That's a new uh, phase in my life. Why bother with life insurance? Well, because I think I'm going to die. We're young. We're never going to die. Well, no, I mean, I, clearly I, I'm taking out a, I'm, I'm making, I'm placing a bet. I'm, I'm betting that I'm going to die before this company thinks I'm going to die. So that, I that's didn't know point. you were a gambler. That's interesting. Dude, this, I, like, I know in my heart that all insurance is a, is a form of gambling. All right, Ned Flanders. But nothing has felt more like gambling than this life insurance thing. I thought, I thought the way life insurance worked is you had to, like, apply for it, and they had to, like, figure out that you actually had a reason to justify getting life insurance. Like, to me, if you're the sole provider for a family with children, great, life insurance. If you're you know, uh, have a bunch of dependents or, you know, some people rely on you for some kind of support. Great. Life insurance makes total sense. I didn't realize you can basically get life insurance on anybody you want. You can just place some money and say, I bet that person's going to die uh, and get some life insurance on them. You have to sign like one paper, I think. But it's not at all complicated. And you can also just say, I want it to be for any amount of money. And they just change the rate, right? So mm-hmm. we, we had to get life insurance because of uh, now that we're now that our company is growing, the business has some value we have to give it for tax purposes. Uh, and should one of us die, in unfortunately, uh, the business would owe the estate of that person a quarter of the business's worth, right? And if that business is worth a good bit of money and the business has to pay out of pocket for, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars to, to the estate of one of us that just died, it's going to be a huge strain on the, on the business. So now we have life insurance wow. for that. So basically, mm. I'm in a death pact with my co-founders. <laughs> a tontine. <laughs> a tontine it is. Life insurance is scary, man. It's just straight gambling. You can just get it for anybody for any amount. Just- it's kind of like betting against the team you want to win. They win, you're happy, but you lose money. They lose, yeah, exactly. you win money. You're splitting. You're hedging your bets. That way, uh, you know, something yeah. good happens no matter what. Andy, if you live, you're losing money, but at least you live. At least if my best friend dies, I'll have a big chunk of change, right? That's a good thing. Yeah. Money solves all your problems. Totally. Wasn't a famous rapper that once said, more money, less problems? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the famous quote. I think um, I got the quote right. Cash yeah. rules everything around me. Cream, more money, less problems. Yep. Please give me the money. I think it's the verse. Not mistaken at all. But yeah, so if three of us died, that fourth person would be wealthy. <laughs> Should we just get saying. a podcast life insurance policy just for the gambling factor? You could. You could get it. We could get life insurance with each other because of this podcast. You, you could say to the life insurance company, yeah, if Dan dies, our podcast is probably going to go out of business. And we make a solid $300 a year off that. So I'm going to have to go okay. ahead and get a million dollars of life That's insurance. That's being hasty. <laughs> Where's this $300 you're hiding from us? Oh, yeah. I forgot to tell you. We're making 300 bucks a year. I'm just hiding it from you all. That's, oh, my God. I, I'm in it for the money. I've always said that about podcasting, really. That's what everybody always says about podcasting. I feel like we should discuss Uber. Have we talked about Uber in the show before? I mean, I know we've probably referenced kind of. it, but if we discussed... Well, we really actually haven't, which is kind of weird because... I know. It's been 80 million episodes. I feel like we've talked about everything. But uh, but no, I don't think we've discussed Uber before strictly. I think people are familiar with Uber. I mean, this is like a car sharing service that I think originally marketed itself as everyone's private driver. The idea was that you, while being a regular person, could afford private driver level service uh, in a black car with uh, water in the back and a driver that wouldn't talk to you if you didn't want them to. Cost a little more than a cab. You could order with the app. Since then, they've expanded. And I think UberX has become a big part of their business model. And UberX is um, not the high class black car service. It's just somebody usually on a Toyota Prius or something uh, that will drive you somewhere. Um, so it's, you know, a ride sharing service, essentially. And the, hist- <laughs> the company has a, let's say, colorful history with its ethics and there's been lots of disputes about whether drivers are paid fairly or are somehow being taken advantage of and the most recent feather in the cap of ethical quandaries about uber is one of their senior uh, executives was quoted at a dinner event uh, to a buzzfeed reporter whom he thought was off the record uh, as saying more or less something to the effect of uber could or might uh, hire investigators to research and probe the personal lives of journalists who have said negative things about them in an attempt to smear them, uh, which of course is pretty significantly unethical and also kind of like in a monstrous evil thing that like an evil corporation from a, from a cartoon would do, right? Like we're going to hi- we're going to like hire a smear campaign for little tiny news websites. Like for all that, for all the influence that like Pando daily has, it's like not a big organization. We're talking about a pretty small, 
pretty small operation. They actually put up like a live recording on SoundCloud the other day that has a snippet of the quote from the Uber exec. I'll drop that in here so you can hear exactly what was said. I'll, re I'll read you the quote. So this is about Emil Michael. Michael was particularly focused on one journalist, Sarah Lacey, the editor of the Silicon Valley website, Pando Daily, a sometime combative voice inside the industry. Lacey recently accused Uber of, quote, sexism and misogyny, close quote. She wrote that she was deleting her Uber app after BuzzFeed News reported that Uber appeared to be working with a French escort service. I don't know how many more signals we need that the company simply doesn't respect or prioritize our being women's safety, she wrote. At the dinner, Michael expressed outrage at Lacey's column and said that women are far more likely to get, assault, to get assaulted by taxi drivers than Uber drivers. He said he thought that Lacey should be, quote, be held, quote, personally responsible for any woman who followed her lead in deleting Uber and then was sexually assaulted. Then he returned to the opposition research plan. Uber dirt diggers, Michael said, could expose Lacey. They could in particular prove a very specific claim about her personal life. So what it comes down to is that, uh, oh, and also like the, the CEO of the company said a bunch of sexist things. And it's uh, the culture of the company seems to be fucked up. And this sort of raises the question. And so this week specifically, in response to this off the record, but not off the record quote about reporter Sarah Lacey at a dinner party in Manhattan. Lots of people are deleting the app. They are publicly announcing they're deleting the app. They will no longer use Uber. They are sending emails to the company about how this is a problem and their ethics are getting in the way and therefore they can't use the service anymore. Uh, it seems like there's been a, if not big, at least a very loud public exodus from, from the service. So... Do we not use a technology thing because of the ethics of the people that are making it? I always think of like watching a Woody Allen movie. I guess now thoroughly enjoying a Bill Cosby comedy special. Yup. Oh yeah. And Gosh. that's I've always kind of been been on board with separating the artist from their work because there are plenty of well. I mean, have you ever said anything in Gil Sands? Like, there are plenty of examples in all of our <laughs> lives. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, if you haven't, listener, if you haven't read the Wikipedia page for Eric Gill, you really should. It's 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 a good page. Some things were done. Um, yeah, no, so Matt, I mean, that's, uh, that I think is my gut feeling, right? Or at the very least, I don't, some people will be like, Woody Allen, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, Bill Cosby, 16,000 allegations of rape from separate women, therefore, bad comedian, bad movie maker. And I, I won't go that far, right? Like, these can be horrible people that are still remarkably talented that put beautiful things right, in the Right, they're making good things, right? Annie Hall but is, like, horrible one people. of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, that will not change no matter how horrific Woody Allen is. It may change the my feelings when I watch the movie, but it will not change the the quality of the product, right? So... Right. So yeah, so, so I guess in that vein, you could say like Uber is still the best ride-sharing app. But actually, I didn't finish my sentence because okay, well then for whatever it. reason, I feel completely differently here. All right, here we go. <laughs> nice. I, I don't know how to separate the two things though because it's not like, I mean, it's not like I'm not giving Woody Allen my money, but I am giving Uber my money. Like both, the the end result seems to be generally the same. Like you're giving somebody your money, they're benefiting from it, and they might still be a terrible person. So I don't know why it's different. I have a theory. What's your theory? I think I think it's because Uber's only reason to exist and all of their behavior can be traced back to this is to make as much money as humanly possible. Right. Uh, Woody Allen and Bill Cosby, though they may have been successful in their careers and made a lot of money, you get the sense that that is not their goal, especially with someone like Woody Allen, I would say. Like, he's made, what, like 45 movies over the years and never once has really caved to the idea of making, like, a more approachable, popular movie, right? Like, they've yeah. all been yeah. very true, it seems, to what he wants to make, and they're always mildly successful, just enough to, like, pay the bills and make a little bit of money, but never, like, you know, off the charts, you know, blockbusters. Um, so I think that that's probably one of the reasons, right? It's like you're saying... These people have an artistic vision. They're, that That's the call they're answering. And Uber's right. call is like, hey, made a lot of money. Fuck all y'all. And also, the, the people I'm talking about, the artists I'm talking about, did way worse things. Like, nobody's accusing the CEO of Uber that's of raping true. somebody. That's very true. We're accusing him of being misogynistic and having bad labor practices, which is which is bad, like, no it's doubt. It's very bad, although it's, it's, less, it's less intimately bad, right? Like, it, it, it seems like a more acceptable bad because it's, like, disconnected, right? They're, like, they're not necessarily, like, personally shitting on these people. They're just, right. you know, building a system that is inherently shitting on these people, perhaps. 
yeah, I think that it comes down to like that. Like Uber is one of these like VC funded tech companies and their whole goal, their mission statement is essentially to take over the world and make as much money as possible, uh, right. which makes me just like you, Matt, very keen to just toss them away as soon as they give me a reason not to. Um, Dan, before I keep talking, what do you what do you think about this? Well, being someone who is currently in a VC funded startup that's currently trying to get money from people, uh, but are you just are you just trying to get as much money as possible? Is no, that your only goal? Because no. you're, you're you're trying to get people healthy, right? Like, there's not yes. money in that. What's your problem? If you're trying to make money, you'd be doing something else, like ride sharing. I was being facetious. That's a stupid thing to say, Andy. The is diet it? industry is a huge yeah, industry. No, it's, it's also a really huge and really predatory industry too. Yes, it is. Atkins diet. No, it's conflicting because it's, you know, a service I used to use very often, but I haven't lately. And and when news like this came up, I was like, well, I don't really use it anymore. I don't really like I don't want to keep giving them money if there's the allegations now and there there's the things going on now. My imagination is this is going to continue to get worse because I don't imagine executives learning from their lessons in this company. So I don't know. I, I kind of feel like I could just forego it and it won't really impede much into my life, which is okay. But I think as a whole, that, like this is a really good example of the sort of behavior that's pretty common in startups. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the thing that really rubs me the wrong way is that th- there's no real backlash for many of the startups that have this sort of behavior. And the fact that many people are loudly leaving their usage of Uber is nice, but are they doing that with all the other startups that have the same sort of mentality, just not as much press coverage? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so... I mean, I should say that, but first of all, I support everybody who is leaving Uber. Like, if you... If this is where you're drawing the line and this is where you're going to sort of stand up and walk away, I think that's great. I would, I totally get behind that. Um, to, like, play the other side of the coin briefly, I think it's not just startups, Dan, but, like, how many of the things we do every day are, you know, working their way up and somehow feeding some horrible, shitty executive at some company, right? Like the yeah. burning of fossil fuels uh, in any form, be it in a car or an airplane, ultimately feeds some of the worst, most horrible companies in the world. Buying things, buying Apple products that are built in overseas factories. Like at the end of the day, <laughs> it's, it sounds so defeatist, but uh, it is so, so hard, probably nearly impossible in this country to live a life where you have such a footprint that nobody that is un- unobjectionably shitty is benefiting from from you in some way. A good example is the Chick-fil-A. There was the whole big hubbub oh. about them and the, the horrible decisions that they decided to make with donations to certain organizations, all under mm-hmm. the guise of Christianity. But that chicken is really good. See, I actually stopped with Chick-fil-A. I, I will not eat their goddamn chicken anymore, and I miss <sighs> it. The chicken is very tasty, and this is one of the only food things you and I may ever agree on, Dan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> partially because I haven't had it maybe since I was in high school when my diet okay. was a bit different. But yeah. that's one thing where, like, I don't know, for them it's, like, so, so like, part of their mission statement, right? Like, like yeah, Uber is. is at least, like, denying. They're like, oh, this guy said some stuff, and we don't believe it, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chick-fil-A is like, uh, yeah, our mission is, like, make chicken, and also maybe the gays are bad. But, you know, chicken's good, gays are bad. Yeah. Um, so it's like so ingrained in the culture of that place that I like, I can't viscerally do it. And and Matt, to, to back to your point of like separating the art from from the artist, and um, I, I do think Uber is the best ride sharing app. It certainly is the best here in Baltimore, where we have Lyft as well, but the adoption is nowhere near as high. No. You can you cannot reliably get a Lyft car in this city. Uh, much anywhere, actually. Yeah. I, so if you can't do it where Dan is, then you probably can't do it anywhere. Is what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, so, so it is the best of its kind. So if we're talking about like measuring the quality of the service, I don't think it's a bad service in terms of like its user experience or quality. I think it does a good job. Um, and I will even go so far as to say that I think overall, something like Uber being in the world is only a good influence uh, on, on a high level. Like we're talking about less people feeling like they have to own their own cars, feeling like they have to be entitled to drive themselves wherever they want to go, being willing to you know, take some form of, of shared transit, even if it's an Uber car that's, you know, a, a black Lincoln town car with water in the back and you don't have to talk to the driver. As much as all that sort of culture is toxic, I do not own a car. I never want to buy a car. I live in a city with horrible public transit. When I can't bike somewhere, it is an amazing alternative to have. And I think it's a good thing in the world to have that alternative. It's also a bit conflicting too, because if you really think about it, 
Uber is merely just like the middleman utility between the driver and you. That's all it is. It's just making it more user-friendly. So, you know, in a sense, you're like, okay, some of the people that run this thing are really shitty. They don't actually do anything with the actual app that you use. It's just a Ex- functional oh, tool. Oh, but I think they do, though. They, like, they conceive of the whole thing. So I, my, my biggest criticism of Uber as a service, not of the people running it, yeah. uh, is that it is, and you may have seen my, my Twitter storm from earlier today, is that <laughs> yeah. it's like, it's taking this uh, thing that previously was only available to like the mega rich people, like having a private driver, and it's saying like, oh, technology is going to level the playing field. Let's give that to people that can still afford to pay $25 to go across town uh, on, a, on a given day. Yeah. Uh, and in doing so, it takes the same people that would have been driving your cab possibly or would have been driving your you know, rental car from some other driving service. And it kind of takes away even more of the humanity. You don't have to talk to them about the rate. There's no opportunity to tip them. You just get into the car. You get out of the car. I think so many people do it because there's not that uncomfortable exchange, right? My economic class does not clash up against the economic class of the person driving my car. I'm not reminded of my insane privilege and entitlement. I'm not reminded this person driving the car probably has a family and kids to feed, and they're making a tenth an hour of what we're charging in our business. None of that is coming into play because Uber has built this, like, comfort zone, right? The app is this, like, comfort buffer between you and this other person. Um, And ultimately, I think that existence of like, let's make this transaction, which is uncomfortable for very good reasons in a lot of places, let's make that comfortable, let's remove all of that. That to me seems crazy, crazy dangerous. And that to me, I think, Dan, comes directly from the fact that the people that are running this company are like, well, I shouldn't have to deal with somebody else that, you know, is going to spew political opinions in my face, or I shouldn't have to deal with tipping somebody. I don't want to have to go through that social interaction. Like, I deserve to just get in the car and get out. Let's make that happen. Well, that's a good point. I don't know. I think that does come right from the top, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, I've wanted... Have I talked to you two about... Um, I, I talked about Christopher Alexander's book, The Pattern yes. Language, as yes, my happy ending a couple weeks ago. Yep. He has this amazing, amazing pattern in the pattern language that... So, I mean, a lot of the highest level patterns, again, are about like uh, city design and government design and urban planning, like really high level stuff. Um, so it's not practical things, right? Like if, if I was fixing up a house or like doing something, I wouldn't be able to really take that into account. Yeah. But it's a really interesting kind of high-level uh, design thinking about these kind of situations. And one of the things he describes, he talks all about how public transit systems should be designed, how where you should run the train lines and the bus lines to make everything most efficient and how, where the housing should be relative to those things. And it's all really thought through. And he describes this beautiful idea, which I think exists in a couple cities, but not exactly as he described, which is this idea of minibuses, right? So he talks about how um, the biggest transit lines... Um, shouldn't be spread out throughout the entire city. There shouldn't be train lines going everywhere because it'll be noisy, it'll ruin neighborhoods. Uh, you should have them kind of just running between major nodes of the of the city um, and, of course, going out of town to other cities for, for longer rides. And the, the, the sort of middleman for that system should be what he described as a minibus system, uh, which is like minivan-sized buses that hold like, you know, four to eight people uh, that are just all over the city. They're small. They uh, and they also they go wherever the drivers want them to go. They're, or wherever the riders want, they're not like set on routes, you know. So you don't have to plan and sort of arrange things. Um, but if you take all of the money and infrastructure spent on like a bus system, and you instead put it in this minibus system where you can just call it. And he, he describes because this is written in the '70s. He describes like every 600 feet uh, in the entire city, in all in both dimensions x and y, there's a there's a phone booth where you can call a city bus or a minibus, and it'll pick you up and take you somewhere. Um, the idea being you would never go any further than to the nearest public transit hub, right? You wouldn't have the minibus take you 17 miles out of town. You'd have it take you to the train, which would take you to that place, and then you'd get on another minibus to go wherever you were going. Um, this idea is, seems so mind-bogglingly amazing to me, right? Like, if I could get to the train station here more easily or get to the airport here more easily without having to do some horrible, like, Uber thing in between, like, I would gladly share a car, and, and it seems like he thought of this thing when it was almost completely impractical. Like he talks about having a, a giant phone bank and uh, like operators that are managing the lines and figuring out like who in which uh, minibus is going which place so they can like most efficiently dispatch them and get people where they're going. But like we have computers now. You could totally build an amazing computer system and like smartphone app that would do all of that. That would just tell the driver exactly where to go. Uh, all the riders enter the destinations, and it tells the driver which people to pick up and which people to drop off first and last. And you have a smart algorithm so that no one's ever on the bus for you know 45 minutes while everyone else is getting dropped off. Um, and it seems like such an amazing... It's like what the world would have made if the world <laughs> was not full of Ubers, but was instead full of people that wanted to make technology that would like better everybody instead of just better the mega rich, right? Right. 
Why doesn't that exist? I want that so badly. I would. The reason that doesn't exist oh. is because we're talking about it from an urban planning perspective, and that's not where the solutions are coming from. They're coming from private companies that have the interest of themselves, not the interest of the people in the city. That's exactly why that. How do we fix that? Like that's a huge problem. I don't right? know. That's a I don't know. huge problem. <laughs> I have no idea. That's like the whole problem with capitalism. Every company is just trying to figure out how to make as much money as possible so they themselves can survive. Nobody is thinking about the overall well-being of the people in cities or the country or anywhere else, except for politicians, yeah. I guess. But they're not even doing that because they have to go fundraise and figure things out. Like, you could also make like it's not like it's not a profitable idea if you could do that. If you had you know a fleet of minibus vehicles that you could sell to a city the same way that every bus manufacturing company sells a bus fleet to a city and it came with an app like that's not unprofitable like there's tons of businesses that are making money that way but they're all archaic right like there was a there was a transportation hackathon in baltimore here where we got to meet um representative from from the city bus system uh who like one of the guys that runs it and he was saying that one of the questions we asked was like, hey, like we're doing this hackathon. Uh, what data do you have available about the buses? Could we like, do you have data about where they're currently located with like sensors on them? Can we get that information so we can make an app to tell you when the bus is going to come, how late it is? Because there's nothing like that in the city. And uh, he said that uh, the buses all have like many multiple different tracking systems on them uh, because every company that has a stake in that bus puts their own tracking system on it. So like the, the manufacturer has one on it. The city of Baltimore has one on it. Um, the transportation authority has one on it. Uh, and then through the years, other kind of private companies have come along and promised to offer bus tracking computer systems and also gone and put sensors on all the buses. And then the contracts ran out and the software was proprietary. Now the, the software doesn't work anymore, but the sensors are still there. So he was like, end of the story is yes, every bus has six or seven sensors on it that all do the same thing. All report, you know, geo data. Uh, but no, we have access to none of them. Sorry, you can't have the data. And it's like, ah, this is the broken system everyone should be trying to fix, not the fact that nobody has private drivers. I mean, so is the problem that it's run by the government that is only going to give out one contract that can expire? Or is the problem that everybody in technology doesn't want to deal with real problems and it's much easier to deal with fake problems or, well, or more profitable problems? Yeah. I think it's both, right? Like, I think the government is fundamentally broken, and it's even more obvious than maybe it was before because of how much technology has outpaced everything that is government, right? Right. And I'm not talking about, like, NSA. People tweeted me, NSA's got the most sophisticated community system. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, like, the city of Baltimore has, like, the shittiest 911 phone system, the shittiest... Uh, management system for the buses with seven sensors on each bus. Like, everything is horrible and super out of date and running on some crappy version of, like, I don't know, some open-source terrible software. Uh, Not open-source, the opposite of that. Some, like, proprietary thing they had to pay some enormous contract for. And because of the way they make decisions in those systems, there are companies that spring up simply to take advantage of that, right? Like, there there are companies that know the stakes for what the decisions are like, know the variables that are all in mind for a city making a decision, and then like tailor their service to that and are ultimately doing the same thing, right? They're just getting as much money out of the city as possible and they succeeded, right? Like every single one of these sensor companies that came along got a $6 million contract from the city of Baltimore and now just walked away with that money is not doing anything anymore. Um, we, it was very telling. We had, um, we had a, uh, a small city in New York state actually um, email us once about wanting to redo their like city website. I forget how big the city was. It was like, I don't know, 50 or hundred thousand people, like a, a small city. And, uh, you know, they have their city website with all of the information, all of the municipal stuff, the tax records, all the stuff on it. And they wanted to get it redone. And they sent us kind of their RFP. And they told us on an email, they're like, just so you know, ahead of time, um, you know, we are legally obligated to take whatever proposal is lowest, uh, no matter what. So I was like, so why are we even writing a proposal? I should just give you a number on a slip of paper. You don't, you're literally not going to care what it says. You're just going to see whichever one's lowest. And it kind of makes sense, right? You can see the spirit in which that law was made. They're saying, yeah, have, of course. We have an RFP. It's got these requirements. If all of these vendors say they can meet those requirements, of course we'll go with the cheapest one. We want to save the taxpayers money. Like, that's obvious. Uh, and it seems like if you were talking about getting the plumbing fixed in City Hall or, you know, fixing something else, that would make total sense. But 
you and I and everyone within the sound of our voices know that, that is not how things work in this industry. <laughs> you don't just take the cheapest person that said they can meet the requirements because meeting the requirements is at a massive grayscale. Like it is a spectrum. Uh, and also lying. Also, That's a real thing. <laughs> lying is a huge thing. <laughs> that was a really, I will never forget that moment when I was like, oh, that makes so much sense about how every city yeah. has the most terrible, because they wrote the laws. They were like, well, I mean, if it's cheaper, it's going to do the same things. They, they're, it's not their industry. They don't understand it. And because of the sort of complexity of the protections in place, there's not room to make any, to make any progress there, right? Like I, I couldn't talk to that person and explain to them why this was a, a dangerous uh, sort of approach. That would not change the law. That would not change what they had to do. And I mean, to, the other point too is like, do you blame anybody who sees that and says, you know what? I don't want to dedicate my life to this. Like I would... I have a finite amount of living to do, and I'm going to do it not caught up in government red tape. Oh, no. I mean, that was us. <laughs> that was us. We said, no, we're not giving you a proposal then. Good luck with your uh, city website. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, you, can't, you can't blame individuals, of course, for not wanting to fight uphill on all these things, right? But I do think that there is some accountability to be had across the entire spectrum of the industry. Um, and it's not that any one person doesn't want to do something or doesn't want to fight a pill or work against red tape or deal with the complexities of harder problems when there's more money to be had somewhere else. Um, but it's just that we still, as an industry, just like every other industry, value making money above all else. And if those values were different, it wouldn't be fighting uphill. It would be doing the thing that you were most interested in doing. But that's so ingrained in us. And I... I don't mean to make it about the industry because I think it's kind of about this country in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but I don't even but, think it's just about even if your goals weren't making money. Like there are plenty of times where people take on things that they know like as much as that is the industry of tech, like in just in the world, design firms, technology firms, like people take on pro bono projects. People take on things that they know aren't going to make the most amount of money that they could possibly be making just given the time spent. But mm-hmm. even then – it's still fighting uphill. Like you can, you can do. Th- I mean, I'm sure plenty of people have been in a situation where they work for somebody for basically free, and it still demands a ton of their time. Like yeah. that's. Oh yeah. It's not only money. Yeah, and I guess that's. Uh, so what is it then at the bottom? Because we we do, I would say a fair amount of work for. It's like for it's about inevitable failure. It seems like it's about like I know we can get into this. And I also know we can't even, yeah. even at our best, we can't accomplish anything. So why try? No, I think you're right. I think it is what it is, right? Because if you, you wouldn't work for a nonprofit that you felt like wasn't actually going to use your work or wasn't going to respond to your emails or wasn't going to put right. into practice the things you did for them. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think it is that kind of feeling of futility of there's no hope. So why bother? Uh, but, but like that's, if there's anything that technology could do, like if you want to walk around tooting the disruption horn, like disrupt this shit. Uh, like I, no one is impressed that you disrupt the cab companies. Like I, who cares? Um, if you're able to actually take all of that momentum and all of that kind of desire to truly change the world. I, I, for all I'm critical of all these tech companies, I do really believe that almost everybody at the helm of one of these companies like their biggest thing is they want to have some impact, right? They want to make yeah. a dent in the universe. They want to change something. Um, so, so yeah, I feel like that is the place to do it. Like you should be the one. And there's also, there's a, there's a kind of secret weapon there too, right? Which is that all of that uh, red tape, all of that bureaucracy, all of that kind of fighting through the brush uh, that makes your job harder also means that it eliminates any of your competition that isn't willing to do all that hard work, right? Like, it's a very mm-hmm. simple way to say, like, if you're willing to do it and it's as hard as you as you claim it is, then no one else is going to be able to do it and that will be your success, right? So there is something to be gained there, too. It's just, oh, man, I really want a minibus system. I want it so bad. It would be brilliant. Something else that Christopher Alexander wrote about in this book uh, which I'll keep talking about, is the idea that there is a sort of finite, quantified limit of how many people you can ever contain in one democracy. Uh, he puts it, I think, at about like four to five million or something. Like it's a much smaller number than we have in this country. Um, he basically says that like beyond that, trying to come to consensus about anything is pointless and it's going to be a waste of time. And he cites much smaller European governments, I think the government in Norway or something, and talks about how, uh, you know, 
being that they're ruling a smaller group of people, like people have more direct access to the people that are actually affecting their lives. So there's like more engagement with the entire political process and things actually do change very quickly when there is a problem. And that, and, and that's actually like the way this country was devised was like that, right? Like we were supposed to be just a loose republic of states. That's uh, true, actually. We were the United States. We were not one enormous uh, sort of superpower. We were like a conglomeration of separate states that all had their own sort of rights. And in the original formation of the country, that was a much bigger priority. And then civil war kind of threw a wrench into that. And we were like, maybe states' rights, not so much. Um, but that was kind of the idea, right? It was that you couldn't impose these things federally across a land this big let's give everyone the little piece and let them do their own thing um and i I mean now i feel like we really are just one thing like the difference between states seems like arbitrary and and nominal to me most of the times like i don't ever feel like states really have that much of a different like personality with with rare exception like i feel like texas is kind of its own thing a little bit i feel like california has got its own thing going but like talk about the difference between maryland and delaware in virginia and i'm like uh don't know. Um, how does this relate back to Uber? Yeah, let's 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 tie it back. Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I agree with your with your thought there of maybe bringing it back to where we started. Um, yeah. So when it comes down to it, um, I I used Uber yesterday. Like I knew all this stuff was happening. Uh, I don't at all support the ridiculous behavior and. Uh, things that that vice president said uh i don't think that he's truthful when he says he didn't mean them and that he uh you know was just kind of talking out his ass i think he was talking out his ass but that's truly how he feels um i think it's dangerous but i would rather do that than own a car and my alternatives in baltimore are pretty much none right like i had to get to the train station yesterday morning at 4 75 or 5 o'clock to take a train to new york and i was not going to not take an uber so I don't know. I'm conflicted. And I still I still love Annie Hall. Oh, what a movie. Yeah, no, okay. Let me ask you a straight-up question. Uh, if you had to do that same across-town thing that you would do with Uber, uh, how would you handle that before Uber existed? Uh, my bike. I would have biked to the train station, which I could have done yesterday morning but mm-hmm. i was in nice clothes because i was going to a meeting in new york i had a, a decent sized bag with me i mm-hmm. uh, didn't want to leave my bike locked up at the train station all day and it was i think 28 degrees when i left the house in the morning um i bike in the cold all the time i'm happy to bike everywhere but yeah. uh you know there's just certain times where i don't feel like doing that for whatever reason and it's rare like i would say i maybe take an uber like once every two months for the past like three years that it's been around in baltimore yeah. Um, and I've biked pretty much everywhere else. So if Uber did not exist tomorrow, how would you handle the situations where you would use it? I'd get back on my bike probably. Okay. Um, it, it, I'm, I'm thinking like before Uber existed in Baltimore, uh, there were some things I would just be like, I can't do that. I don't have an option to do that because I can't get there. Hmm. Um, Baltimore is a nice small city, so I, I really truly can bike pretty much anywhere within the city if I need to get somewhere. I've biked everywhere. Um, so there's very few things that are actually totally off limits. Um, and there is one train line that runs north-south uh, that can be pretty useful and one subway line that runs east-west that is not at all useful. It goes nowhere anyone want to go. Um, so I use those occasionally too. Uh, the nice thing is that one north-south train line does go to the airport. Um, and in the past, I have literally left my bike locked up next to a station for the north-south running train for a week while I was on a trip. Mm-hmm. Just because I was like, well, that's that's what I'm gonna do. I'll get a good lock and uh, you know cover up my seat and leave it there. Um, but it's just like I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes it's not convenient, and I, I am a I'm a resilient cyclist. I don't stop riding in the winter. I don't not ride in the rain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like yesterday, I was wearing nice pants. I didn't want to get on a bike in 25 degrees in nice pants with all my stuff. Yeah. So uh, here's my thing. This is why I was asking that. Is that Uber literally is a pl- a privileged service as what you were talking about beforehand. And the thing that uh, worries me is that over time, once we, all of us use it uh, time and time again, we gain an affinity for it for when, so when things like this come up, a lot of us say, Oh, that's terrible, but we still end up using the service anyways. Uh, And, and what I've learned about executives that hold that sort of behavior, uh, like what that VP has is that, they're they're generally really awful people 
and that when little flashes like this get exposed out into the public, it's literally just a little sliver of what they're like in real life. And uh, to know that he would say something like that and to know that he has that sort of behavior told me that I, I just don't like, I don't have much faith in the company because it's not so much that that person is a bad apple is that the company hires bad apples. So have you, so you're done using it. You stopped too. I think I am. Uh, but you know, same time I use, like we have a, a free shuttle service in Emeryville that takes me uh, to the subway station. It's kind of like the, the, uh, the minibus sort of thing that you're talking about, but it's mm-hmm. less on demand and it's more like they just have a lot of stops and it's completely covered in Emeryville. Emeryville is very small. Uh, it takes me to the train station. I take the train and that's, that's my transit. And then, you know, Angie, like we have a car. Angie uses the car for everywhere. Hey, don't uh, you have like four Jeep Wranglers? No. I wish we had four. We only have one. <laughs> just the one. Yeah. I thought you had two for a while. Did you have two cars and one was a Jeep Wrangler? No, no, no. We used to have two cars when we were in North Carolina. We dumbed it down to one when we moved here, and then I traded that in for the Jeep. The Jeep? Yep. Matt, are you, Matt, are you done using it too? I know you said this was different for you than the Woody Allen or Bill Cosby thing. Uh, are you done with it? I don't know that I'm done with it, but I'll certainly try to use it less, to be totally honest. like if Yeah. It's, it's just one of those things where like now that I know, I'd prefer not to. I'd really prefer not to. And here's the thing. For me... Here's the thing. It's for me. It's very easy. The New York cab system is very good. Yes. Yeah. It um. Is. It's not like it's. Not, I don't use Uber all that much anyway. Um. If any, like honestly, if anything, it's just a less safe alternative to the New York cab system. Like cabs. You say less safe? Yeah. 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 Cabs like New York cabs are really well regulated. Like there's, um, you know, you can always find information about the driver. They have like the passenger bill of rights. Like. I know people may joke about New York cabs, but like it's really well done. Like what? What's yeah, there to argue? No, with and it, it? in sharp um, contrast, Baltimore's cab services are atrocious. <laughs> like having say, been to many other major cities, nothing compares to New York cabs. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I have that available to me. I would continue to use it. The only time I ever use um, Uber is when I'm like deep in a borough, and it's just there's no other option. But even New York has tried to expand to use borough cabs. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but there's, you know, there's the classic New York yellow cab. Mm-hmm. There's now the green borough cab, which are cabs that are only supposed to service um, the outer boroughs and like aren't supposed to pick you up in like downtown Manhattan, uh, which is a great initiative. And like, I actually, I was at a party, like at a, uh, we did a little pre Thanksgiving party with friends and we were out in Brooklyn and we we're like, ah, I guess we got to do the Uber app. Uh, there's no real option. And then a borough cab pulled up and we we're saved. I would nice. always rather take that. So it's, I mean, it's just, for me, it's it's just as convenient or I I think more convenient to take a New York cab, just hail one. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're lucky. But now that I have a, dis- now that it's an easy decision for me to make, like maybe I don't need to take an Uber ever. Why bother? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think the thing for me is that being in this area, I'm surrounded by so many different startups that are trying to do like the, the Uber of X, whatever. Uh, and I think that there's so much fatigue uh, around all these things, just trying to get your attention and trying to get your dollar bills to try to do some easy service for you that I think it's a little bit easier for me to say like, no, thanks. I'm just like, I'm going to do this the other way, like the reliable way, just because I don't want to stuff my life full of more startups trying to do more things. I was like so, so excited when it came to Baltimore because cabs in the city are terrible. They uh-huh. exist, but you can only reliably get them at the airport and the train station. And then you get in and the person doesn't take a credit card and they only want cash. And the price seems like a twice as much as you said. And it's it's terrible. Um, well, you know, I, I will I've, say, though, like I'm not stopping. I'm not going to stop watching Woody Allen movies like. Yeah. And, and that's I also think that's a, a little bit different because like as much as as we as everybody like especially the people making the apps would love to talk about how people love their service. Like you don't love Uber the way you love Annie Hall. That's a different yeah. thing. Yeah. That's not, it doesn't connect no. to you in the same way. So I don't think, you know, I don't have that kind of emotional connection with, <laughs> with a car service. So I, I don't want to be like too like wishy-washy about it, but like it is a big deal for me. Uh, and like, I, I said everything about the, like, you know, dehumanizing wall of technology that the app puts up and I try everything in my power to not 
be that, right? Like I get in the car, I always talk to the drivers, I always ask them what Uber is like and if they've been making a good living and what their sort of thing is like, because I want to know what the system is like that I'm supporting. Yeah. Um, so like, but it, it was a huge deal for me when Uber came to the city, because like when I first was biking everywhere, I was a college student. Most of the things I needed to do were all in my college little area. And beyond that, there was nothing really important I had to do. And I could just go everywhere and like, you know, ratty jeans and whatever. Um, I've grown up. I have other duties and responsibilities now. And there are things that I do need to do that biking is not at all convenient uh, or right. Um, and so it was like when Uber came to the city, I felt like a, felt like my desire to not own a car for all the million reasons that I don't want to own a car uh, was now like supported in a way that it wasn't before, right? Like before it would have been like, I would have to live this weird like counterculture life if I didn't want to have a car. And now it was like, no, I don't need to live a counterculture life. I can just do this whenever I have to and then ride a bike every other time. Um, so like I, I did have like a strong emotional connection to it. I, I don't feel that way about it now. Um, less so honestly because of this kind of news and more so because talking to the drivers, uh, it's not the greatest system for them. None of them are like, yeah, this is going to make a million dollars. They're all like, oh, it's kind of rough. Uh, people leave bad reviews and then you get screwed over. And mm-hmm. so I don't know. Because um, the no. other thing is like, it's, I think this ties in a little bit with the like 99 designs conversation actually um where like i think a lot of people come to baltimore and uber is a job they can get right away right like their their vetting system is not that complicated like you can just get the job if you can get access to a car for uber x um there's a lot of people i get a sense driving those cars that this is like one of the only opportunities for them to make a living where they're currently at in their life yeah. uh, and so for how shitty the system is um to some to some degree i have to forgive it a little bit because it is providing an opportunity for some people so I have so many complicated feelings. It's a really crappy uh, part of this whole thing is that there's so many people that their living is whatever the service is. Like if it's Chick-fil-A, if they're working at Chick-fil-A, that is their living. Uh, if they're an Uber driver, that's their living. And that if some executive says something really stupid and a bunch of people say, I'm not going to give this company money anymore, they're actively uh, taking money from people who are just trying to make a living a lot of times. Like if it's an Uber driver and executive says something stupid, everybody says, oh, I'm not doing Uber anymore. They just caused fewer pickups for more drivers, which, I mean, that that's going to affect real people. And that sucks yeah, because one it's, it's person like, says one stupid thing. It's This whole, like, the world is such a complex place. As soon as you try and be thoughtful about your impact, mm-hmm. you immediately become aware of just how complicated and kind of confusing everything is yeah. but i don't know we're all just doing our best i i like the shit sucks like i think uber is just one of the brightest and most obvious examples of a vile toxic culture that is prevalent in hundreds of companies uh coming out of the silicon valley or at least coming out of the sort of silicon valley mindset mm-hmm. um which is not to sort of forgive uber uh and sort of say it's not their fault but it is to say that this is a bigger problem we should be solving on a higher level than just simply not taking cars somewhere. Uh, and it is worth noting, too, that it's easy for us to say uh, maybe that these things don't bother us as much because almost across the board, we are not the people that are being targeted and, uh, you know, ruined because of these things, right? Yeah. Like, we are not a journal. We're not a journalist. We're not women. We're not, uh, you know, people that are working class are going to be driving these cars. Like, we are the entitled class that gets to take them and uh, not think about all of the ramifications of it. So I'm hyper aware of that too. And I don't want that to mess things up either. It's so goddamn hard to not be shitty. (laughs) Right? Like I feel like I've gotten way more sensitive to my, my place in the world and it's just so, so hard. Like think about just banks. Banks are across the board, some of the worst organizations. And what are you going to do? Not put your money in a bank. You have to put your money in a bank. Mm-hmm. Everything else is totally unreasonable, but banks give out predatory loans and banks fund all this other like horrible Wall Street bullshit that just makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. They're like some of the worst organizations and there's just no, no way to opt out of it, right? Well, mm-hmm. if it makes you feel better, if you don't put your money in a bank and you just go to like a check cashing place, it's much, much worse. It's far more predatory yes, and more is. evil. So, Andy, you're only being a little bit evil. All right, Dan, it's your happy ending, right? You better make it a good one because I think we just talked about the futility of all of the systems 
in the world. We yep. talked about now, the theme of the episode was separating art from the artist and the creation from the creator. That was the theme of the episode. Yeah. Okay. And government sucks. Matt's all philosophical and shit, man. So oh, I had one happy ending in mind, but I kind of want to do another one because it kind of feels more closely related. It's fine. You, yeah. you could just lie to us and say that second thing was the first thing. No, yeah, or no, just, no, no, or no. just go back in time and not have said this whole thing ahead of time. And no, just the fir- into it. first one we'll was like we're a, smarter. A, first one was a visual identity that I really enjoyed, but I'm going to save that one because I want to talk with my happy ending about the Jeep. If you think about like the actual driving experience, like if you look at a Ford, um, they now have like these digital displays that are supposed to show you all these like diagnostics or some shit like that, try to inform you or whatever. And the thing about the Jeep is that it just keeps all the same meters from the old days of, like, you know, your speedometer, your oil level, and that the only thing at the bottom is just a toggleable, uh, like, LCD little screen that will show you, like, the direction you're going in or the temperature, and that's it. Aside from cars, which I really enjoy, like, I love driving. I hate distractions. Uh, The only thing that I want to be able to have is me and the road and then some music. I love that Jeep has had so many opportunities with their cars to be able to just put a bunch of technology, put a bunch of like startup-y bullshit, but they kept the decision to keep it very bare bones and and make something that's about driving. You know, when you first said the Jeep, I thought it was going to be a bad, happy ending, but I, I get it, right? You're saying this is like the, it's like the pure essence of vehicle yeah. in some ways. It's not done up in all the trappings of the 21st century it's just what it needs to be and it has sort of remained maybe gloriously unchanged i don't i don't know i don't know in too much detail but it seems to me like the jeep wrangler hasn't changed much since the 80s right yeah the vehicle has only changed body types a little bit since then um my preference in, in cars are like that because my first car was a like 2001 ford ranger it was the cheapest thing on the lot uh it had a one disc player in it um, all of the, the windows were hand cranks. Everything on it was manual. And that was the perfect driving experience for me because it was literally everything, the minimum that you needed to be able to enjoy driving on the road. And the fact that I could still find a vehicle and the fact that like the Jeep has that so I can still have that experience is wonderful. And I don't have to have a bunch of glowing idiot screens around me with all these touch screens and it's nice. Dan, is the Jeep Ranger you'd say your favorite car? No, it's not. What's your favorite car? Uh, my favorite car is a car that my dad actually had when I was a kid. It was a 1970 Chevelle with the 396 in it. Um, that car was... Woo-wee! Yeah. Yeah. And thing, there was two engines that came for that car. There was a 396 and a 454. The reason why there's a difference in numbers, that's the cubic inches for the size <laughs> of the engine. Uh, yes, I know. I'm not, I'm not that much of a computer geek. Yeah, I, I get yeah, that no. that's the, the volume of the engine. But um, The reason no. this number is different, you see. Yeah. No, I'm just saying that in general, most people are not car people, so they don't know why there's there's numbers for the older cars. And gosh, that car was like I that was one of the first cars I got to drive. I don't know how he let me drive it uh, because it was such such a beautiful thing. But it was fantastic because you could peel out from a stoplight. Not that my dad ever did this, Uh, but you could and you could be the fastest person on the road. But you saw the gas meter move when you did it. But yeah, no, there's just a lot of nostalgia in that car. How about you, Matt? Favorite car? I don't have one. I'm not a car guy. I'll leave it to Dan's. I I drove a uh, Honda Accord. I was like functional car guy. I'll just get the the cheapest thing that will not break down, that parts are available for, uses gas well enough. God, I'll get it in beige, sir, please. Just beige. Just, I'm not saying it's my favorite car. I don't, I don't even think about cars. I don't think about them. My, my favorite car, not that either of you asked. I was about to ask. No, wait, wait. Let's set it up so I can cut out the part where I talk about the car. Andy, what's your favorite car? <laughs> You're such a dick when you're in the show. Uh, uh, I think, you know, it's always a tough, a, tough, a tough sell. I think my favorite car is the original BMW 2002. Mm. That is probably the best car, in my opinion. Okay. I, I think it's right up there with uh, with the original Fiat 500. That is also a beautiful, beautiful little car. Yep. Uh, I love them for the same reasons you're talking about, Dan. Like they're just like they are mechanical things that do what they are de- designed to do, and nothing else. There's no place to plug in your iPod or GPS or any of that crap. It's just a thing with wheels that goes and looks nice. They look nice. 
been On The Grid, episode 91. You can email the show, mail at onthegrid.co. You can tweet to us using hashtag on the grid or find us individually at Madam C, at Andy Mangold, and at Dan Hour. If you want to submit a link for us to discuss, visit our subreddit at onthegrid.reddit.com. If you enjoy the show, please review us on iTunes. Thanks to Gable for the interlude music, Girlfriends for the theme music, and you for listening. Until next week. I have not gotten surged since that 12-pack. Well, good for you, Dan. Is that <laughs> I have no, not no, gotten surged since <laughs> the 12-pack I drank. I haven't had 12 sodas in the past 17 months if you added up all the soda I've drank. Mm. Yeah. Andy gets another gold star. I'm yeah. sorry. I didn't mean to be so condescending. I'm just a fucking snob. I, oh, that's, that's still a lot of soda to drink, okay. Dan. It's no, all no. I'm saying. So this reminds me. Uh, I still have this screenshot where it's us when we used to use Skype. And I said something that was like kind of a zinger, and then right after that, you said "shut up, Pop Tarts." <laughs> yeah, and that I saw like that. A thing I would say. And Angie just sounds got like some, me. She, uh, in rare form, went and got Pop Tarts the other day at the store, and that made see me she think supports of you. Yeah, yo, you guys do follow Wu Tang Finance, right, on Twitter? No, fantastic. I, I pretty much stopped following joke accounts based on the Dave Chappelle skit. Kind of. I mean, yeah, they do a lot of references to Chappelle, but I don't know, man. That's nothing to fuck with. <laughs> I can't. I can't abide this conversation We're done. right now. We're I don't done. know if I can do this. <laughs> I think we have to stop. We have to stop. We, as white people, have demonstrated that we listen to rap music. We made references there. Now you all know. Uh, yep, that happens. Wow. Yeah. Trying to get that paper. Yeah, you know, podcasts yeah. are back. They're huge now. They are back. Mm. That cereal is revolutionizing how podcasts work. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that two podcasts created by people that uh, were spun off from the world's most popular podcast in the history of all time were able to become popular quickly? What are the chances? Podcasts must be huge, a new viral medium. Mm. If podcasts are back, MailChimp is going to MailChimp and Squarespace are going to rule the world. They're going to become the new Fortune 500 companies if uh, if podcasts are as big as everyone thinks. I they believe seem it's to be. pronounced MailChimp. MailChimp. What is the deal with that? Did I miss an inside joke? Have you listened to Serial the Podcast? I shouldn't ask. You clearly have not listened to Serial the Podcast, have you? No, I haven't. So there's this really adorable MailChimp ad at the beginning uh, where in typical public radio fashion, they have a bunch of people saying the word MailChimp. So it's like, MailChimp, MailChimp. And then this uh, young, I think she's like a 13-year-old girl. Uh, I think English is her second language. She goes, MailChimp, Chimp. She like pronounces it wrong, but in a very adorable, memorable way. Thus uh, yeah. making it probably the most viral soundbite of 2014. I'm going to go out here and say it now, folks. I'm calling it most viral soundbite of 2014. Why is that Mail such camera. a popular way of dealing with sponsor announcements on public radio? So I think it's because it makes you sound human. Is it because of Radiolab? Well, no, I think, it, I think it started with This American Life, probably. I mean, they used to they have people call in and read their ad spots or read their yeah, credits that's true. for... for 15, 20 years. So I think it, one, it makes you sound human. It emphasizes the humanity. Two, it shows the diversity of your audience, maybe. Like it helps connect people with other people that are fans of the show to hear the voice of somebody else from a different walk of life that is also enjoying this show, I think is a kind of emotional thing. Um, it adds some, some uh, texture to the podcast, which is mostly just people speaking like this. Act one, on the grid, graphic design. Does it matter? Does it not? Um, so add some add some texture. You get different voices in there. You get a guy from the Midwest calling in on a tractor. You get uh, you get someone ca- calling in from Manhattan. You get a bunch of different uh, textures in there. I think those are the reasons, pretty yeah. much. Uh, and also, it's like there's only so much you can really do with with audio, right? I mean, I guess Radiolab kind of proved that you can do more than people thought, but they still do that. Still, they just also put people through like a chopped and screwed filter, where it's like we need Do you think we should ask Dan to really thicken up the accent? Dan, could you go like a lot more Southern in all future conversations? I think it would help, frankly. Well, absolutely. We could absolutely do that. And he's making a lot of cringe faces. Ooh, that <laughs> Diversify your bonds, y'all. Oh. Don't forget. Mm. Okay, I, I said yeah. it would help. I said I thought it would be good, and now it's just <laughs> making me feel Not weird. that we're an advice podcast, but I feel like that's a voice you don't listen to if you're talking about advice. No. I don't know why. 
Yeah. yeah, just grab the firework. <laughs> don't worry about it. It don't go off ever. <laughs> Hold my beer. Watch, watch my wall. I do this. Is what they write <clears throat> on my tombstone. Mm, yeah. Hold, hold my beer while I grab it. <laughs> hold on. Gonna use a pickup truck and go me back in the weekend. <laughs> hold on. I'm gonna use the pickup truck. It's like the most phoned in southern tagline I've ever heard. My overall, my overalls fell down. And my spittoon is full. No, whatever, man. Famous last. Famous last words. I read the manual. Oh, man, he's so good at it. He's so good at it. <laughs> Makes me think it's genuine. God, I lived in North Carolina for, like, what, 18 years? Do I have a detectable accent of any kind? I've always, of course, I think everyone feels like they don't have an accent, right? But I grew up in Philadelphia, and people tell me it's a Philadelphia accent that I cannot hear. And then now people have been talking recently about how Baltimoreans have a specific and very distinctive accent, which I also have no ear for. Is loud an accent? Okay, you know what? <laughs> Fuck off. I accept. I accept the burn. Well earned. Oh, man. Good game, well, guys. That's a good podcast. A great uh, I'm stopping and recording. I'm upload to the to the server, and then we're yeah. done, right? Yeah. Wrap it up. 